please remain standing while we read the following passage from our scripture taken from Luke 4, the verses 31 to 44. And he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. And he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The very word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, reading the words of some of the very early acts of our Savior here on earth, there are a number of things that catch our ears, so to speak. The power of your Son to do all the things that he did that Sabbath day that made people remark on the authority with which he spoke and the results that they saw in front of their very eyes. And then we read at the end of the passage, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Father, I pray that we understand that the good news that Pastor Andrew has for us this morning 
is the very same good news that our Savior brought. Holy Spirit, empower Andrew to speak the words that you have put on his heart, and may we respond, for our faith comes from hearing the word of God, and in doing it, may this be glad tidings of good things. This I pray. Amen. Good morning. Boy, I was a little less enthusiastic this morning. I, that was very subdued. I, I really don't feel that way. Start with uh, Bob Dylan this morning. We're not going to end with Bob Dylan, I promise. Uh, but I know some of you are fans. Uh, he was recently interviewed, so this was in December of this past year, and they were asking him all kinds of questions just about making of music and artistry and, and various things. Um, and they were asking him how he spent his pandemic. Uh, did, did he stream Netflix? What did he think of the creativity, blah, blah, blah. Uh, this is what Dylan had to say about that. He said, I'm not a fan of packaged programs or news shows, so I don't really watch them. I never watch anything foul-smelling or evil, nothing disgusting. I am a religious person. I read the scriptures a lot, meditate and pray. I light candles in church. I believe in damnation and salvation as well as predestination. The five books of Moses, Pauline epistles, invocation of the saints, all of it. Pretty stark words there from Mr. Dillon. What I appreciated about it and uh, another article that I was reading commenting on it is just the, the urgency of it, the, the starkness of it. It wasn't really nuanced. Uh, here's how this uh, other commentator uh, interacts with it. He says, There is a deep paradox in my own theological vision. I judge myself a progressive Christian, this is not me speaking, uh, who prefers fire and brimstone tent revivals. Uh, I like the holy rollers, the snake handlers, the prophets of doom, because among them you feel that something is at stake. For my part, none of this imagery makes me feel afraid, guilty, or judgmental. Rather, this starkness, this urgency makes me feel alive. It wakes me up. It makes me feel like everything that I do today matters. Life feels full of adventure, significance, and portent. Today has an edge. My heartbeat is eschatological, my pulse is apocalyptic. I wonder about that urgency, that, that sense of, you know, everything that I do today matters. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, uh, but it, it's, uh, it, it really searches us. And it asks us this question, like, do we really believe in everything that we talk about when we come into church? You know, when we talk about life, death, when we talk about Jesus as one way, when we talk about uh, all of these things, is, is it really real? Is there an edge to it? I think it was for Jesus. Jesus. 
You know, as we come to this passage today, and again, we're in this series where we are not necessarily going through a book uh, piece by piece, but rather we are looking at all of these different encounters with Jesus. When Jesus is going about uh, his day, when he's walking through the world and he's encountering people uh, of various sorts, what, what is it that happens? How is it that he judges his own time here on earth? And in Luke chapter 4, these verses that we read today, 31 to 44, we have the account of one day in the life of Jesus. If you notice, it begins in the synagogue, it proceeds through uh, Simon Peter's house, and, and then as the day is closing, all of these people are here. And then it says, uh, the next day came, he went and sought some solitude. But one day in the life of Jesus, a 24-hour period, and there is an urgency to what Jesus is about. I, I must be about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, in, in Greek, it's a little word, D-E-I, or Delta Epsilon Yoda, uh, day. It is necessary. I, I must be about the gospel of the kingdom. And we see that here coming to fruition in, in really surprising ways in some senses. But it just points out this overarching theme that an encounter with Jesus, an encounter with Jesus most often is the occasion for an, a kingdom in breaking. Uh, the, the kingdom of God breaks into the world that we are and nothing is the same. So how do we see this? Unexpected people, unexpected places with unexpected power. A couple of observations here for you as we walk through. Uh, one of the things I like about this passage or that has sort of captured me this, this past week is that none of the people who encounter Jesus in this passage are named. Uh, we will see next week, we'll look at Nicodemus, and, and there will be other named people uh, that come before Jesus. But in this passage, at least, none of these people are named. Uh, and that's really encouraging because I think many of us feel anonymous. Like, does God really know me? Does God really see me? Does God really uh, know what I need and, and what I'm waiting for and longing for? And there's a sense in this that uh, there is a, a seeing on the part of God that he breaks in even when he doesn't know our name. Two that are in, uh, in the forefront here in this passage. The first is the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Some of you remember just how this chapter breaks out. Chapter 4 at the beginning, Jesus is tempted. After he is tempted, he goes to Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth, he, he preaches this gospel of the kingdom. You know, the, I've come to set the prisoner free, to break the bonds of captivity. All of these quoting from Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, the people reject him there at Nazareth. They want to throw him off the cliff. Uh, but he makes his way through, moves on to Capernaum, and takes up the exact same thing 
that almost got him killed. Uh, there is an urgency to what he is doing. The, the deeds of men, uh, the deeds of humanity can't stop him from his mission. Now, his mission is, is stated in a couple of different ways. We saw here at the end in verse 43, we'll come back to that, is to preach the kingdom of God. That is why I came. We also know from 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that Jesus came to uh, undo the works of the devil. Jesus came to uh, compete, to undo, to, to conquer the demonic forces that are in the world. And we see that here with this demon-possessed man. Uh, it's interesting. We're not told a lot about this man. We don't know uh, exactly who he is, what he's doing in the synagogue, all of those things. We do know that he is beset by these, these spiritual forces that are at work in his life. They exert a kind of control over them. He, he is not able to combat that. They cry out when they come into contact with Jesus. Now, we have always a minute when we approach these from a Western scientific mindset, you know, how do we understand these spiritual forces? If we were in a different part of the world, this might not be such a challenge for us. We, we might recognize the existence of, of power on that spiritual plane that, that comes into our lives. But I find that, you know, even in commentators that you read, there's always a tendency to want to explain these things. Like maybe this person had epilepsy, or maybe there was mental illness, or uh, we can think of lots of different things. Sometimes we even think about addictions and, and how they have control over our bodies. I would say that, uh, you know, we can certainly uh, employ these sorts of things, and uh, there is a bleeding over between the physical plane and the spiritual plane. There, there could be a sense in which those things could be true, but we cannot neglect the spiritual realities that are at work in our world. Uh, that there are principalities and powers uh, at work uh, that Jesus has come to defeat. He's come to defeat the works of the devil. The devil controls and uh, the devil breaks into our lives in various ways. It's one of the things that we have to learn to recognize even in our own life. You know, so often we think about just the material side of things. Like if I can only get control of my eating, or if I can only get control of uh, my, my drinking or excessive drinking, these types of things, not recognizing that, you know, that while these things may be true on this plane, there is another plane at work. And, and, and we are battling in our excesses, we are battling in our sin, we are battling always the spiritual forces that are at work in our life. But what is comforting is what we see with Jesus here, that this demon who has control over this man has no power in the presence of Jesus. Jesus is able to speak this word to him uh, and, and even though the demon identifies him as an opponent, Jesus is able to say, be quiet, come out. 
and the demon has no choice but to come out. And notice, too, he, he comes out and he doesn't harm the man. There is a gentleness there with Jesus' power that preserves the well-being of this one who was so ravaged. We see this man, again unnamed, demon-possessed, and yet Jesus, in his encounter with him, sets him free. Do we believe that? Do we believe that about ourselves, uh, for ourselves, the spiritual forces that are seeking to wreak havoc in our lives? Do we believe that about others, those that we love? I, I know some of you have, have many people that you love. Uh, that are, are dealing with addictions, mental illness, a variety of things uh, that, that come in. Do we believe the power of Jesus to, to deal with these things? There's another incident here in Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Um, again, she's not named. She's identified Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Just at, tangentially, it's interesting that Peter has a mother-in-law uh, as the first pope. Uh, you know, he's married, uh, but apparently not celibate. Uh, Peter has a mother-in-law, and she is very sick. Um, and she's sick. We're told specifically that she has a high fever. Now, I don't know what you think about fever. I'm sure some of you have had fevers in the last month. Um, we have, again, a very scientific understanding of fevers. We think about microbiology. We think about viruses. Uh, we have medications that can deal with the symptoms of fevers. We have uh, other medications that can get down to the roots with regards to fevers. And so most often when we get a fever, we're not all that concerned about the fever. We, you know, just got to get through this. Uh, other times, it can be very scary. I mean, some of you have, you know, seen those who have been in the throes of a really high fever that's lasted a long time. You've watched your kids, you know, just kind of burning up, you know, shaking, all of those things, chills, everything associated with fever. In those days, uh, fever was... was very different. You know, they didn't have the understanding of microbiology and viruses and everything that we have. They didn't necessarily have the medications uh, that could deal with the, with the symptoms of fever. Furthermore, they also had this idea that illness and, and fever was a, a judgment from the gods. Even within Judaism, uh, there was this, if you go back in Leviticus, you go back in Deuteronomy, uh, God says, you know, if you fail to walk in my ways, uh, I will afflict you with high fevers. Uh, that's among the list of things that will happen if, you know, people are disobedient to the covenant that God was making with his people. So here's this person who has a fever. We don't know much about them. We do have this sense that, you know, there's a spiritual aspect to everything that happens to us. And the mother-in-law is, is burning up with this high fever. And so it says uh, they appealed to Jesus on her behalf, verse 38. 
So Jesus came in to the house, stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she rose and began to serve them. Jesus, again, deals gently with her. One translation, uh, rather than the word stood, says Jesus bent over her. He lowered himself in order to be in her presence, despite the fact that she was unclean, uh, and he healed her. This is a similar pattern that we see then later on in the evening as people bring uh, everybody with various diseases. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Here we see Jesus entering in, not to the demon-possessed or the demonic world, but to the world of sickness, the world of microbes, the world uh, where our, our bodies begin to break down. And he deals gently with this woman. But he exerts the same power that is able to heal her and restore her to life. A couple of observations just with, um, with regards to these two incidences, these, these people that Jesus heals. We mentioned this last week with regards to Matthew or Levi. Matthew was seated at the tax collector's booth. And while all the people were going to Jesus, Matthew remained seated. Uh, but Jesus came to him. He, here we have the same thing. You know, here's two people, neither of which is able you know, due to the being bound by the Spirit or being incapacitated by this disease, neither is able to get themselves to Jesus. But Jesus finds his way to them. And I just find that incredibly encouraging and life-giving because I know we feel like that at times. We feel incapacitated uh, for whatever reason. You know, we, we see the, the promise of Jesus, we see the power of Jesus, but can I get there? Is it for me? Is there something there? And Jesus finds a way to break into our world and into our life. The other thing that I, I think is, is really interesting, and I'm grateful for this group that study and pray with, uh, in, in both of these incidences, notice Jesus rebukes. He rebukes the demon. He rebukes the illness, which, again, is, is sort of interesting. Like, we don't really think about an illness as something that needs to be rebuked, but he rebukes this brokenness that has affected uh, this person. He rebukes the brokenness but he restores the people. Isn't that encouraging to think about that? Uh, we, we have the things that afflict us. And, and we know that Jesus has come to, to deal with those things in our life. But Jesus has come to restore us 
to what he has created us for. We see that so clearly with this woman. You know, what, what does he do? He, he restores her and she immediately gets up and she begins serving in the home. Uh, she, she begins taking her, her place there in that particular time and, and doing what God has made her for and called her for. There's a restoration I also want to comment just a minute on the, the places in this story, the synagogue and the home. Uh, we have these two places, I mean, unexpected, I don't know if they're unexpected places, unexpected in, in this way. Like, we, we think about the people, we think about this demon-possessed man, we think about uh, the mother-in-law, but think about the places where Jesus enters and, and what the effect of is it. it of it is. I already mentioned the home to a certain degree. When we have these things in our home, it, it disrupts the rhythms of our home. It disrupt, disrupts our fulfilling of our purpose and our calling and all of these different things. Uh, Jesus knows the, the private things in our life, and he cares about those things. He cares about what goes on in our home. He cares about the, the intimate relationships that we as disciples have uh, Peter and his mother-in-law, and you know these these things we can bring to Jesus. Now, maybe you say, "Well, I, I do that all the time," but I, I just think there's a, a freedom there and something worth noting. Like this is a, a very into in terms of the whole scheme of what Jesus came to do. Peter said, "You know, could you take a look at my mother-in-law?" And Jesus says, "Sure." Sure, I'll, I'll take a look at her, and I'll go in, and I care about what's going on in this home and, and for it to function. And, and sometimes we just need to remember that. Like, Jesus cares about what goes on in our homes. Jesus cares about the relationships that we have, you know, siblings, brothers, sisters. He, he cares about the food that we prepare, the clothes that we wash, you know, all of these ordinary things of life, they're, they're not out of the purview of Jesus. And, and I find that uh, very encouraging. The second thing that I think is interesting is not only does he go to the private places of our lives, but he also goes to the public places. Notice the synagogue. Uh, do you know much about synagogues? You've probably heard the term before. Uh, synagogues arose uh, during sort of the Maccabean period, and they occurred, you know, about 400 years before Jesus, maybe a little bit more than that. Then they continued on into, of course, Jesus's day. Synagogues are, are nowhere like commanded in the Old Testament, but this was kind of an intertestimonial adaptation. Uh, when they couldn't get to the temple, people were scattered around. Synagogues would erect in a place where there were 10 Jewish men. You have to have 10 Jewish men uh, in order to uh, have a synagogue. They're spaced out pretty intentionally so that a Jewish community can get to a synagogue within certain amount uh, of steps so that they can keep their Sabbath day requirements. Um, synagogues, they, they did readings, they did teachings, rabbis were there, Midrash, Torah, all of those types of things. That, that's what took place in the synagogue. In Jesus' day, these were sort of the seats of power 
in, in the religious community. And, and what we note here is that they're also containing the presence of this demon-possessed man. Like the, the demoniac, demoniac uh, got into the synagogue. And, and I don't know what was happening, you know, what that looked like until Jesus came in. But Jesus, with all of his truth and authority and power, was willing to go into the public place, the, the place of power, and allow disruption to, to come forward. You know, everybody talking about this Jesus. We see two very different poles there in terms of Jesus and his kingdom inbreakings. On the one hand, it's very private, very intimate aspects of our life. On the other hand, uh, it's very public. Uh, it, it, it brings the truth to the systems of the world at that time and admonishes them to change. One writer puts it this way, says, the kingdom of God is not a prop for the status quo, but rather it is the power of God at work in history to bring wholeness and healing to people and structures of power and culture in which they live. That's a challenge for us, and it's encouragement for us. Sometimes we, um, you know, maybe there's a tendency on one way or the other, and you can see how it works out in different people's lives. Sometimes this kind of goes on conservative, more progressive lines. You know, progressives want to think about, you know, changing institutions and, you know, that type of thing. Whereas conservatives say, no, we stay out of those things. We, we keep it private uh, in terms of our religion and how that works out. Jesus does both. He doesn't eschew either of them. He goes both to the places of power and he cares very much uh, about our private lives and how they work out. The last thing that I want to highlight for you is just the power that Jesus does bring. Um, you know, unexpected power. Shafirian terms, there's no little people, there's no little places, but we also see that Jesus is no little God. Uh, he is full of power and authority. We see that in verse 31. He was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished, verse 32, at his teaching for his word possessed authority. We, we're told this so often in the Gospels that, that people were astonished at the teaching of Jesus. Why is that? Well, for the most part, rabbis uh, just had a long series of quotations. They, they would quote other rabbis, and there was just this constant citing of, of other sources. It seems that Jesus was very different. He sat down, and he read the scroll earlier in Luke chapter 4, and he says, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And, and he, he points to himself, and, and he is not leaning on the words of somebody else, but he is bringing his own teaching uh, with an authority that is helping them go past their traditions, helping them go past their surface understandings to the core uh, 
of what it's all about, Jesus says, it's about me. Today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And, and this, is, this is what Jesus came to do. We see that then toward the end, you know, when it was then the next day, he departed, went into a desolate place. The people sought him and came to him. Again, the same region there of Capernaum and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must, it is necessary that I preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I, I, love, I love the way that this works out, especially when we juxtapose it when, with 1 John 3, verse 8. 1 John 3, verse 8, I paraphrased it for you earlier. Let me quote it for you now. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So here we have two statements of purpose. We have statement of purpose, you know, Jesus appeared to destroy the work of the devil. Jesus says, I came for the purpose of preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Are those two different things? No. They're the same thing. Good job. Uh, they're the same thing. This is, and, and this is how Jesus does it. He does it by the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. There is power in the word of God. There is power in what he brings into his life. And that's why we're here on one, you know, in one sense. You know, what, what is it that drives us here on a snowy Sunday morning in Michigan? Because we believe that there is power in the Word. This Word that has been passed down to us, this Word of authority, this Word that, that points to Jesus, there, there's power there. And, and it's, it's bringing something new. I think about this so often, like, you know, just the complexity of, of people's lives. I just the complexity of my own life sometimes. I'm like, well, if we do this and we do this and, and, and if we manage this and we manage that and if we do all of these things, then maybe we can make some progress. But there is power in the Word. As we come and we sit under the Word and as we allow the Word to change us, as we allow the Word to work in our life, there is power there. Power that speaks to things like forgiveness in relationship. Power that speaks to things like if you lose your life, then you will find it. Power that really equips us and sets us free. And Jesus says, this is what I am about. It's interesting. He could have stayed and healed more people. They were coming. He, he could have put his hands on them. He could have cast out the demons. And he said, no, I can't stay. i got to go. I've got to go and preach the word. You know, why is it that Bible societies are so intent on bringing the word to all of these different cultures in the world where there's no translation because we know that the word has power. And it's through the Word that the kingdom of God breaks in. But it's not only the Word, it, it's also Jesus and His healing touch and His willingness to interact 
with folks. You know, we see the tenderness with Simon's mother-in-law as he bends over her. We see his willingness to get himself unclean as he touches all of these people with various diseases. Remember last week, if you were here, we said, you know, Jesus is, is flipping the, the ceremonial law on its head. The ceremonial law said you can't come around anybody who is unclean because if you come around the unclean, their uncleanness will cling to you. Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way with me. He says, my righteousness is such that when I come around those who are unclean, they become clean. They receive the righteousness. They receive the holiness that clings to me, now clings to them. And this, of course, is, is the, the whole purpose of the cross. You know, Jesus went to that cross in order that he might take our uncleanness, our, our unrighteousness, our sin, our despicable dirt, all that that clings to us, and he would nail it to the cross. And his righteousness then would commute to us. It would be imputed, uh, given. Like, we, we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, but it's given to us. That, that righteousness that belongs rightly to Jesus now becomes ours. Anselm was... Uh, uh, theologian around the 1000s. Uh, he was one of the first people to, to really talk about, um, you know, really talk about uh, the atonement in terms of ransom and, and, and giving of one for another. He, he says, you know, when we come to the cross, we're, we're not coming to, you know, just a uh, the word that he uses or the phrase that he uses is a mere posterior reconciliation of justice and mercy. He's saying the cross isn't something that we just look at in the back and say, oh, isn't that interesting? Justice and mercy kind of come together. You know, the justice of God, the mercy of God given in Christ. It's not just something interesting, Anselm says, but he says rather, and I really like this phrase, the cross itself is a filial intonation. It is God speaking in love about the, the filthy becoming clean about the, the profane becoming holy. He says this, this is what the cross is about. It is the filial intonation of the preexistent divine love. In the God-man within human history, God's justice and mercy are shown to be one thing, one life, one being. The righteousness that condemns is also the love that restores. And we see it in, in this one day in Jesus' life. His, his presence goes into the, tab, or into the synagogue and casts out the demon. His righteousness cannot abide the profanity that has come into the synagogue. His mercy kneels over the woman and he heals her both. And it is always both seen most clearly in the cross. God's justice and his mercy are one thing, 
speaking the, the filial intonation, the, the pre-existent divine love into our hearts. Back to urgency. One day in the life of Jesus. What is, what is your one day going to look like? You have one day to speak to your children. You have one day to reconcile with a brother or a sister. You have one day with your neighbors. You have one day, one day before the Lord. Jesus believed that everyone was lost and in need of repentance, whether they be a prostitute or a Pharisee. Jesus did not show grace only to a select few, but he healed the poor and the rich alike. He dined with friend and foe indiscriminately. He preached to anyone within earshot. Jesus even counted a tax collector and a political zealot as his disciples, sworn enemies who both responded to the same call, come, follow me. Jesus' urgency drove him such. Jesus was not a news reporter seeking to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. In his death, the divine attributes of wrath and mercy collide. Jesus died for all that the Father had given him, regardless of their virtue, worth, or social status. However different people might be, no one is righteous. Everyone suffers. Everyone needs the gospel. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the, the stark way in which it does come into our lives this morning. Lord, we pray that you would create in us a, a sense of, of settled urgency, settled because we know that we belong to you. We know that you have finished the work and that it, it's not our righteousness that we seek to bring into the world, but rather it is yours. But urgent because we know that everyone needs this gospel message. You knew it when you were on the face of this earth. It, it is necessary that I go and that I preach the gospel of the kingdom. Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would encourage us, that you would, uh, that you would touch us where we need to be touched, even this morning. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.